2: Hello, and welcome to In Social Work. I'm Charles Sims, your host for this episode. Diversity, cultural appreciation, and social justice are important themes in social work education and practice. Our discussion with this episode's guest will hopefully help to extend discussions or stimulate them to take place. Agnes Williams is a member of the Seneca Nation and also a social worker. In her 40-year professional career, Ms. Williams has worked in direct practice, supervision, training, education, and program administration. A licensed master's social worker, she is a Syracuse University graduate and has done doctoral work at the University at Buffalo. Ms. Williams has served on several boards with missions of serving indigenous people or advancing human rights, including serving as a delegate to a United Nations human rights session in Geneva, Switzerland. In today's interview, Ms. Williams will provide a cultural context for understanding her nation's worldview. She will also address several issues including historical trauma and human rights and social justice and how they have been compromised. Finally, Ms. Williams will talk about her work with social work student interns and the need to take affirmative steps to provide support for Native American students. Ms. Williams was interviewed by Philomena Cretelli, Associate Professor of Social Work here at the University at Buffalo. This podcast was recorded in May 2013, so you may hear references to events or programs that have occurred in that time's recent past or may occur in its near future.
0: I'm Philomena Cretelli. I'm associate professor here at the UB School of Social Work and I'm here speaking with Agnes Williams who's from Indigenous Women's Initiatives and we're going to talk today about indigenous issues and indigenous rights. So the first question that I wanted to ask you is how does Native American culture and traditional life ways impact social work practice today?
1: When we talk about Indigenous culture, Native American culture, you know, first we kind of had to deal with the terms. Those English terms came about at different times, like after the 60s and 70s, the word indigenous was more popular. 60s, it was Native. After the wars, World War One and World War II, it was American Indian. Before the World War, it was Indian. Indian was a term that was applied to us by Columbus, because they actually thought they were landing in India because they thought the world was flat. So that's kind of where that term comes from, but it's kind of hung in there. So it's really the colonial term, the Indian, we see the word Indian. So the culture itself is very locale-specific, depending on the area, say, like here in the northeast, it's woodlands, and then we have the plains, and we have the southwest, and we have the northwest, and the Southeast, and then, of course, you know, Mexico, Central America, South America. So all of the indigenous cultures, their beliefs are similar, and they're also specifically related to the locale in which they live. So the word indigenous really implies that people who live close to the land So the belief systems that we're really talking about here in the Northeast is the Haudenosaunee, or what we call the people of the longhouse, and we have some pre-contact, what we call original instructions, the creation story, the story of 12 brothers, the great law, and then after contact, the code of handsome Lake. So in each one of those, the original instructions or beliefs or cultural values are basically the same, but they're specific to time and place historically, and kind of retell and reinforce the same cultural beliefs. So in the first one, it, the cultural belief is really about our relationship to the world and the universe, actually, because there's a lot of in there, you know, the Sky Woman Falls, and, and you know, many of the star people nowadays talk about Native Americans as being from Pleiades, the star system, which is on the Milky Way, that's to the next rung over on the Milky Way. So we're generally thought of as Palladians, and today, but in our creation story, is reinforced a lot of those same kinds of notions, with the Sky Woman falling, and then the creation of the Turtle Island, which is we believe is North America, and that relationship to the land, and those original instructions that were given by the Sky Woman's grandsons. There were two of them, and they both had two distinct characters, uh, Sky Holder and Flint. So there's a long, elaborate story about that, and it just talks about the nature of this world, basically, and how it is to be in conflict, the conflict in the world, and uh, as well as the struggle to maintain a balance. So then the second teaching is the story of Twelve Brothers, which came later on, And when the humans that were made by the twins kind of were getting bad, and so we got another teaching, more specifically. And this one this time gave us our songs and our dances and all of the ceremonies that go along with the 13 lunar calendar. And we still practice those today in 21 longhouses across New York State, Southern Ontario, Southern Quebec, Original territory, the you People Longhouse was from the Hudson River Valley to the Ohio River Valley. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things that we do in terms of rituals and practices. And we just finished, actually just had the thunders and the seed ceremony and we're coming up on the strawberries once the strawberries get right. And so all of this is really about, again, our relationships. To here where we live. Then the third teaching is the Great Law of Peace, which came at a time, a very dark time for the Haudenosaunee people. We weren't actually known as, well we were known as people as the Haudenosaunee, but of the longhouses. And it was the Great Law of Peace. And there was a Huron that came across the river. He had been given a message and he came. And the first person he met here was Sose, who happened to be a woman. He lived at the falls and... Her mind was changed from destructive bad mind to a good mind. And then she carried the message. And along with Hiawatha and Peacemaker, they took the message to all the people on this side. And through that, they formed what we know today as the Iroquois Confederacy. And that's the five tribes in which we buried our war clubs. It was about 1912 AD. And they've actually carbon dated that. So we actually gave up the notion of war against each other, but uh, could band together to defend ourselves. So that was the third one, and the fourth one was the Cold Handsome Lake, which came after contact, and that really had to do with the consequences from the introduction of European culture and alcohol and Christian religion and gambling and, and it was really a individual message, you know, like individual behavior with ourselves, how to be of a good mind and to be a sober good mind. So the Great Law of Peace actually was a group in our relationships to one another, and we formed the Confederacy. And during the creation story, we got our clans, which was our basic human organization before that, and then it was elaborated on, in the third one, the Great Law. So these beliefs, you know, are still upheld. The Haudenosaunee were one of the oldest continuing governments in the Western Hemisphere. We still have our Grand Council Chiefs and Grandmothers and people, faith keepers, and these 21 law houses in this territory. So we, along with the Hopi and other, you know, Central South American peoples are continuing
0: well, everything that you've just said, I feel there's so much of a kind of an interface with social work or what social work could be. And you mentioned in many of the stories the issues of the relationship to the earth and issues of spirituality. And these are huge themes in social work today and the issue of the ecological Like we use the ecological approach quite a bit, the person and the relationship to the environment. And I just heard so strongly a lot of these themes in what you just said. And it just kind of struck me as how much social work could benefit from learning and embracing some of the cultural and traditional life ways that you Native Americans practice. I think that there's many values that you just kind of spelled out, things like relationships and relationship to the earth and with the way society, the world is becoming very globalized and more and more there's, I think, an emphasis on people being the same and consuming at the same pace and dealing with the earth in a certain way. How do you see these relating to social work practice today, these trends? globalization, the great consumerism, kind of wearing away at tradition and trying to more or less have the whole world really consume and behave a lot in the same way. I think we are seeing desecration of natural resources and focus on industrializing places and kind of upsetting traditional lifestyles. This has been kind of a feature of a lot of the processes that are going on. I mean, how has this affected Native Americans?
1: Well, with the first contact, you know, in Europe, there was biological expansion in terms of the Europeans in medieval, the 1500s were practicing like pooping where they were eating, and there was a lot of disease that came over. So for Native Americans, when we first encountered Europeans, there was a 70% devastation from disease before we even saw a non-Native person. And all of these teachings and stories that we have, we always have prophecies, and we always have messages about how things are going to go and. And then the time is going to get really bad. And specifically, in each one of those, like the first three, talk about that the Europeans were going to come here, and that, especially in the story of 12 Brothers, they specifically said that when they were going to come here and that we would go almost extinct because of it, because of the death and destruction that was brought from Europe. So, that being told, and it did come true with the biological expansion. And then because we did have the Great Law of Peace, our first encounters with the Europeans, say like with the people from Holland, we have this Tuwa-Wampum Treaty, which really is our first treaty that really establishes our relationships with one another. And we're actually having this year a commemoration of that. The Tuo wampum Treaty was first established in 1614. So we have Four hundred years, so we're having this four hundred year commemoration. What we were to do with this on our part of it is with the two roll you know there's just these two rows, and it really talks about our separateness and because we were in our original instructions really told not to engage into the destruction that is carried on by the europeans so and the two are Wampum, we were to stay in our canoe and then the others would still be here, but we would respect one another and go through life and not disrupt one another's soul, basically. So the non-natives kind of have a term, they put together another visual, which is a chain, a three-linked chain, and they talk about this renewal that is to occur, and they call it Polishing the Chain of Friendship. So it was a chain of friendship. Tuwa all Wampum basically set up this relationship. And this year, we're doing a commemoration of that. And it's starting in Onondaga, which is the seat of the Confederacy, the traditional government. They're going to canoe to Oneida, then canoe to Tafanda, where at Tom Porter's place. And people are making their own canoes. And along the way, the whole effort is really to do what you had talked about in terms of educating the public about the cultural beliefs and the traditions and the historical past of the agreements that we have made with the non-natives in the past and to just renew that friendship and polish that chain. So that's going to be going on. There's an event on June 5th. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Um, And... They're, they get to, to Fonda, New York on June 15th, and then to Russell Sage College on June 27th. And then they're going to paddle down the Hudson. And August 9th is the Indigenous Peoples Day in the United Nations, and they're going to arrive on the west side of Manhattan and march across Manhattan and go to the United Nations for Indigenous Peoples So everybody's invited. It's going to be a really big deal and and a lot of talking and a lot of educating is going to be going on and forging new friendships and relationships and just kind of polishing that chain and renewing the great law of peace and talking about that and educating people about that. So I just wanted to let you know, because it hasn't been done in a really long time, one of the other concepts or cultural things that we do is this idea of one dish, one spoon, which is very, very old. During the creation story time, when we first got here, we established clans. And so, like, say, in my tribe, I'm a Seneca, we have eight clans, four birds and four animals. And this was really, you know, and all the anthropologists talk about it, you know, that each culture has an incest taboo, and this was really the incest taboo, so that would be the intermarriage. So these clans still exist today. The clans are established through the mother. And, uh, you know, just kind of by common sense, because everybody always knew who the mother was. And there's a prohibition also in the clan system about marrying into your father's relatives, too, so it's not just exclusively mother. But but your clan is actually designated by who your mother was. In our present-day operations, we still use the clan system, and we still practice these things. So that's going to be going on. So this two-row wampum, the other part of these original instructions, we have a elders and youth gathering that's been going on probably for about 20 years. And at a certain point, many of the traditional people got together on an annual basis and they shared some of their teachings with each other. And it's kind of like this big puzzle, you know, North America, and it kind of all fits together. So many of the things that are talked about in, say, like the Plains or the Southwest or the Northwest, Southeastern peoples, Central and South America peoples are similar and coincide with the same teachings that we were taught. So hence, when we got to the UN in 1977 and found out that we weren't allowed there because we weren't considered human beings, we are only populations, and it's a nation-state organization that the indigenous people have been meeting since then and at the UN without a voice because they're not a nation-state, and then... In 2007, we gained recognition as people and having human rights. So that's a really big thing, but it took 30 years.
0: So, right, so you're referring to the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. You mentioned now that really specifically recognized that Indigenous Peoples' rights had not been honored and set up a special declaration to address those issues. Do you see that as something that has had an impact, that has changed, or helped improve the situation
1: well having a declaration in the united nations is the first step the greatest impact is on being recognized as human beings because before that we we're considered populations and weren't afforded human rights and the origins of that notion really go back into europe and actually into the vatican from your homeland and the idea of christian dome and for the pope and the vatican ruled for many, many years, and then by the 15th century when, say, the Lutherans started and the Brits started with the Church of England and all these other groups started to break away, there was also this whole trade routes to the East and conflict between the different countries in Europe and the Vatican or the churches to kind of weigh in on those things they established in the 15th century, the papal bulls. There's a papal bull for Africa. There's a papal bull for North America. And the papal bulls basically said that any Christian had the God-given right to kill and take the property and land of any non-Christians they encountered in their explorations. So that papal bulls was used to begin this horrific, especially by the Spaniards here in the Caribbean and North America, and then became the basis of the land claims. So the basis of the land claims then it morphed into the U.S. law, of the Doctrine of Discovery. So what we see today is there have been two recent decisions in a 2007 decision, Cheryl, the town of Cheryl versus the Oneidas, in which the court ruled because of the Doctrine of Discovery that they ruled against the Oneidas. And also with Grand Island, New York. The decision they use the doctrine of discovery.
0: It was a land claim.
1: Yeah, the Haldenashoni land claims. So the legal arguments are around you were conquered, just give up and become American, and which is what I hear when I go out and I talk to church people. <laughs> I get yelled at a lot. <laughs> I think underneath it all, you know, really talking about human relationships and people, it's really about the Western European notion on cultural value for dominance, and after the Declaration 2007, in the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, for this year they're talking about violence against women, but last year they talked about the Doctrine of Discovery, so everybody came and testified, which we have been doing for the last 30 years. We've been crying around and waiting and, you know, wringing our hands and complaining. And so finally we got the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, they have to go, the next step for that in the U.N. is for it to become a convention. And it also needs to be adopted on the grassroots level. So what we've been doing in terms of public education is to educate the public about, rather than just saying, you know, here's all our problems, We also bring the Declaration to say, this is what we want. We want human rights and we want collective rights and we want prior free and informed consent before anything is done to us on our land. We want to have some say in in what happens.
0: So you're really saying that the Declaration is a beginning, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to really make it binding in terms of a convention. And it sounds like there's a lot of education that needs to be done when you're saying that even in the community, people who are, I suppose, if they're church people, they care about other humans, but they're still kind of ill-informed about indigenous rights.
1: Well, there's a whole value in Western culture, and especially with the colonizers, people who have colonized continue to colonize or continue to globalize. The globalization started when Columbus first hit the shore. It's out there, and it's this whole value for what's all about entitlement, supremacy, what's the basis of white supremacy? It's the notion of that domination is natu- a natural thing in this world. And this is really what we're up against. You know, when we talk to people and try to educate people, because a lot of people like to believe, you know, that they are the winner and, and they're, you know, what they, you know, what's going to happen in their locale is going to happen because they say so. And it doesn't, they really don't take into account any indigenous people's um, right to have a say about our own future or our right to exist. So and that's reflected in the media. We have this invisibility. We have a generic problems with identity. you are given a, like a generic Indian identity, and then everybody globs onto that, and it's just misrepresentation and misinformation right down the line And uh, the sports teams with the mascot. And just, you know, it goes on and on and on. The English literature, you have people writing fiction, claiming it to be Indian native literature. And it just, the misrepresentation is just rampant throughout American culture. So what basically American culture does is if any ethnic groups will take one aspect out and then they'll turn it into something American, which they lose the context, they lose the history, and they turn it into something that they want because they believe they have the right to do that because they're American. So that's the big problem, and that's when we try to educate people. That is like, you know, that's the first thing we get. Well, who are you to tell us anything? That's kind of what happens.
0: So there's a lack of understanding or embracing that there could be another worldview. There could be another way of looking at things. Because, I mean, I'm struck by you talking about the message of relationships to people, relationships to the earth, of balance of the destructive bad mind, something that is oriented toward peace. These are all things in my book that we need more of (laughs) as a social worker and a person that supports human rights. So I guess I am making a comment rather than a question, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. In this particular point in history where the earth is being threatened with climate change and all these things. Why won't people listen? (laughs) I mean, I think there's some very important messages that come out of your culture and worldview. So I don't know if you have any comments about that. I mean, when we think about just a lot of people are concerned about the environment and what is happening there. And some of these teachings, I think, have a lot of relevance.
1: Well, the environmental problems are at such a gross state today that there's new Indians. Everybody's an Indian nowadays when it comes to environmental degradation. So it's not just us, Indians, that don't have prior free-informed consent. It's all people. We just had a meeting at the West Valley Nuclear Waste Site, and they have big pools of water that they use to cool these reactors, and they release that water into the Cattaraugus Creek, which flows through, since 1964, flows through our reservation, goes into Lake Erie, and goes into the water intake. For buffalo. So people, you're all drinking irradiated water and there's no prior fee and informed consent of when they actually dump that water in there. And then when there's flooding and erosion, it happens again. So there's a whole issue of clean water for everybody. The Great Lakes are really suffering from all of the chemicals and the pollution that have been put into the Great Lakes. And we have a real specific calling here in this region, in the Northeast, because of the Great Lakes, because there's no other place like that in the world that has these freshwater lakes. So we're all really called upon, not only to, by saving ourselves, to save everybody else. So it, we're kind of, we've gone full circle back to the one dish, one spoon. And finally, we've been labeled terrorists in the 60s and 70s, uh, Hoover had the COINTEL program and we were labeled terrorists and we were all rounded up and spent the next 30 years in court and uh, Leonard Peltier is still in jail. What we found out about the shootout that he was involved in is that day the tribe had signed away one-eighth of the Badlands because the governors in that region had decided that the Badlands were going to be a national sacrifice area for storing nuclear waste. So we have these huge policies and Governmental actions. And I talk about the nuclear stuff because I think it's the most extreme and most dangerous thing that challenge that we all face today environmentally. The cat's been out of the bag, and the ego and the pride of, of the policymakers will not allow them to say that it's a failed industry. They have not successfully contained. Nuclear waste, and Obama put 32 million or billion, whatever it is, into opening up some old plants. So, the whole energy issue, becoming a sustainable community, is a big thing that we promote and try to become more self-sufficient with our food. On our reservation, we do not have a grocery store. There's 3,000 people that live here, and the development of the first and second world is dependent on the underdevelopment of the third world the working class, the workers, the low wages, and the undevelopment of the indigenous people of the fourth world because it's all our natural resources. So the land U.S. title does not exist for 70% of the land in North America, and most of the natural resources are on Indian land. So we're really facing this really huge confrontation with Idle More and the Canadian car sands and all these environmental issues that are coming up, because primarily as Indigenous people, we're the first affected, because we still live close to the land.
0: Yes, yes. The environmental racism and degradation is really a lot of times targeted toward communities that are quote-unquote marginalized So I think you made a very important point, and you've talked about a lot of the different social problems and social issues. They definitely are in the domain. When you said the one dish, one spoon, I like that metaphor because we are all in this together and social workers do treat symptoms and address the causes of social problems. Could you talk a little bit about what a trauma-informed and human rights perspective looks like for social workers who work with Native Americans?
1: Well, we've talked about the cause of these problems, so now we can go to the symptoms. So after contact, we had U.S. policy that forcibly removed us from lands, put us on reservations, which limited our hunting and gathering and our ability to feed ourselves. As a result, the reservations, the subsequent policies of and the boarding schools, which came right out of the Department of War and military style, where children were forcibly removed from their homes at age 5, not to return until 18 years, if they did return. And here on my reservation, we had one of those boarding schools. It was the Thomas Indian School. So our community is very diverse, because many people that live here at Cattaraugus are not Seneca's. And it really creates a real interesting dynamic for us, because this is the home that they've known, because they grew up in the boarding so, there is uh, kind of that uh, captive syndrome thing that goes on because you'll find many people that will find the best out of the boarding school experience in order to carry on. <laughs> so, you know, all of this stuff is going on, and it, it's all been U.S. policy. And it's still in place, it's still in people's thinkings and regards. The whole idea of Christian dome, the dominance of the Christian faith. It's really being challenged, and as we all know, in the Middle East, they've been fighting there forever. Unlike here, we weren't really fighting on that scale until the Europeans arrived. So this war that has been going on, this war behavior, is really part of the American psyche. It really is the mental health. It's part of the mental health issue and crises that we face today. So treating symptoms, we were dying off till 1900. We are going extinct as a population of people. We've only had 100 years of physical recovery. Our average life expectancy is 54 years old. We have high rates of heart disease, sugar diabetes, and cancer. And these are all stress-related diseases. So that's what trauma-informed care looks like on a reservation. The historical trauma is really still impacting and experientially with each generation multiplying so that the impact is multiplied and hits each next generation. We have very high rates of suicide, native people. So we're in a recovery. We're in a physical recovery in terms of our health, social problems, social work. We just recently, here on our reservation, they decided to start a social work department and hired a Ph.D. social worker. So that's interesting because the tribal governments who are elected have the tendency to hire non-educated people. So we're kind of just now moving into a phase where uh, there is a recognition for the need for skilled, trained, professional people to work on some of these problems. So we do have some foster care recruitment The generation following the boarding school generation, of course, is the adopted children raised in boarding schools have no parenting skills and consequently lose their children to foster care and adoptive systems. So there's huge numbers of children, adults, who don't know who they are. They know they're Indian, their skin is dark, and they have no idea of who they are. So then you have a mental health crisis on your hands. That's that experiential multiple symptoms of each generation just occurring as we speak. There are some social workers that work on it, but on the different levels. It may be on a micro level, but the, the meso level, some family treatment, most of it's individual treatment, some family treatment. I know our group, the Indigenous Women Initiatives, was one of the few macro placements for a social
0: work we can maybe move to that, but it sounds like in the situation of indigenous peoples, the interface of human rights violations and trauma are just so present. In terms of your recommendation for social workers, you were talking about treating some of the symptoms of the health disparities and the health problems. If you kind of hint that it's very important for people to be connected to their history in terms of a trauma-informed and human rights, a whole part of a human rights framework is that These are rights. They're not needs. It's a right to have access to your culture, to know your culture, to preserve your culture. And you were talking about how that was robbed from people and has created intergenerational issues that the community is still facing and social workers are still facing.
1: Well, at the Indigenous Women's Initiative, I picked the ecumenical area because of It includes the religion. I've worked for 35 years in social work in different arenas, and I chose the ecumenical arena because it did include the spirituality. It did include the religion, which is the basis of our cultural values. So I was thinking, these people, of all people, should really want to know and understand the basis of survival of the human race, no matter what or who you are. It is your spirituality. is the only thing that's going to get you through all these monster social problems that occur. So going into the ecumenical community, we are first talking about the Doctrine of Discovery. Last year, five of the uh, national churches, the World Council of Churches, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, the Unitarian Universalists, and the New York Quakers all repudiated the Doctrine of Discovery. So this is what we're asking, looking for a few good people in the churches to take it through their church to repudiate the Doctrine of Discovery and to begin to address this notion of dominance and the justification for conquest of indigenous peoples. So the uh, Sisters of St. Joseph have stepped up in the Catholic Church, and they were just appalled when they found out that this even existed in their church. So they are beginning a campaign to take it to their national level. We had a meeting at uh, St. Joseph's University Parish, We're invited area churches to come and hear about the Doctrine of Discovery. There's many DVDs, Steve Newcomb and Robert Miller professors that have done extensive work on the Doctrine of Discovery, dismantling it. Anybody can go on the Internet to find that out. People get so overwhelmed and frustrated. It's always like, well, what do you want? So then we pull out the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous
0: People.
1: And from there, we can go to the local Issues, what's going on, which is, of course, taxation without representation, no economy, we don't have a grocery store. We just recently started a farmer's market on our reservation because we have no grocery store for a community of 3,000 people. But that's because we're not supposed to be part of the development. We're only, that's the thing that I found in my 40 years of social work. It's mostly when people meet you and they find out you're an Indian, they will say to you, Oh, or they will think, Oh, what can this Indian do for me? So that trying to change the image of who we are as people is really a challenge and one of our biggest especially in the media. And we've all seen it, the Lone Ranger and Tontos and it's there and now when Occupy came about we put two teepees up in downtown Buffalo in front of the city hall and we had our signs. People are like, What is that about? And the media would hardly ever show the teepees. They'd show other stuff about Occupy, but they wouldn't show the teepees. So there's still that conscious blacking out of anything that has to do with Indian. And when the, that doesn't succeed, then it's always the name-calling, and it's always the dehumanizing.
0: Yes, I was just sort of reading some of the reactions when Obama signed the declaration and Fox News and everyone's terrified of any claim of any rights or that indigenous people will really have a leg to stand on to be able to claim the rights to land and resources and things that were taken away. So they like to Frame it in a very negative way. So I see what you're probably up against quite a bit in terms of misinformation on the part of the public. Well,
1: in 1790, we owned most of the country. I'd say like 80%, 85% of the country. In 1850, we had lost half of the country. In 1880, we've been reduced to maybe 5 10%. And this was all policy, this was all deliberate, this was all planned. And it really was about dominance, people believing that they have the right to dominate others.
0: So we've been talking a lot about social workers and the various social problems and more micro-issues, but you kind of alluded, you just mentioned policy and the need to really address policy. I know you work at Indigenous Women's Initiatives where you supervise MSW interns in a macro placement. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what community organizing and social planning looks like in that context, in that agency, since it sounds like that's another important area for social work and for policy changes.
1: Well, one of the things that we've been working on is called World on Your Plate, and we have this on Columbus Day weekend at Damien College. We've had it for 10 years. And it's really bringing in a lot of the environmental issues, the ecumenical issues, the economic issues that are facing people today in America and in Buffalo. And we really talk about food and how we feed ourselves and how that impacts our health us how we're sharing our food and how we're sustaining ourselves as a community so everybody's invited to that that's are usually around the second weekend of October and it's at Damien College and that is our one dish one spoon right now we have within our culture we have the what we call the sustainers of life which is all of our foods the corn beans and the squash the three sisters and so we usually do a Three Sisters workshop. We do workshops on the water, of course, with the nucleides in our our drinking water. Our campaign is called Nuclear Free Cattaraugus Creek. So we're trying to get that going, keep that going. And it's, it's forever because that nuclear waste just lasts forever. We have the 2 wampum coming up. The other thing that we worked on was we work with students primarily because most of us at Iwi have we in American Studies at the University of Buffalo and I was there in the 80s. I was a doctorate candidate in 1991 and my dissertation topic is the retraditionalization of indigenous women as an empowerment strategy and I kind of carved out my area of working with women primarily at that time. So we also do a back to school social which is usually the third weekend of September we try to get area students together so they can meet and greet and know who's... Because, you know, it changes every year and you have to get busy early on to get anything going. And the students do a lot of organizing on the campuses. So we always, as Wing we support their efforts, their socials, and the cultural events that they have. And then October is World on Your Plate. December, we do an event on December 10th, which is Human Rights Day that we've done at Historical Society. And this last year we had it at Howe Walls. And this is where we talk about the United Nations and we talk about human rights. And we actually had the Salamanca High School students have been going, this is their third year, they're down there now at the UN. And uh, last year they did a testimony on the Doctrine of Discovery. The first year their testimony was on the Salamanca, uh, the taking of the lands and the Salamanca lease, the Kinsu undiem, and uh, how... The communities were devastated and relocated for the Kenzuma Dam without any prior free and informed consent. So the students testified on that two years ago. Last year they testified on the Doctrine of Discovery. So this last year in December we showed their DVD of their testimony and the students came. And we also worked with Peace Jam, which is a group that works with high school students in the east side and they go to see a Nobel Priests Prize winner at the end. And they have weekly gatherings and they talk about peace. So, all those students came and our students came and we headed out. How oh, well? It was very, very successful because it's really, I guess, some of us have, have uh, really given up hope for the older guys. You know, we're looking at these younger people because this is what we're leaving them are all of these problems and this devastation. So, we're trying to educate them about that. So, that's December. And then we kind of have a slow season, January, February, and March, which is winter, of course. And then we've had the Farmer's Market Project on the reservation this year. So that's the things that the macro student worked on. We hold a monthly talking circle, which is a way to follow up these kinds of talks and any of the events that we have to continue the dialogue. It's open to the public. It's always the second Thursday of the month at twelve seventy two Delaware in Buffalo at the Network of Religious Communities, at twelve o'clock we share a organic snack and then we open the circle at twelve thirty, and it usually lasts till about three, and a lot of people come and give their announcements and talk, and we use uh, traditional smudging, and the talking circle use an eagle feather to. Show who's talking so that people don't interrupt. There's no crosstalk. That's the hardest thing for most people, no crosstalk. So that goes on. We've been doing that for like eight years. Then we have a singing group, a youth group that we work with as well, and then interface with all the other Native events. For anybody who's interested in what's going on in the Native community, NAICS has a -a once-a-month meeting the first Thursday of the month at noon, And all of the different Native people that are doing agencies, whatever, services, uh, community events, sports, they all come and we all kind of do a roundtable. It's called National Urban Indian Roundtable. And the public is invited to that. They want to find out what's going on with Native people in Buffalo.
0: It sounds like you're doing incredibly holistic, wonderful work, touching on so many important areas of organizing and planning. And you mentioned that you are supervising MSW interns. I'm assuming they're either non indigenous or some of them are indigenous or?
1: No, non native, because the UB natives are really underrepresented in the School of Social Work. And there's been a few initiatives, but nothing that's really produced a native core of social workers that can come out of the school and go to work in the Native
0: community. Yes, that's exactly where I was going with this in terms of the underrepresentation of Native Americans in the School of Social Work. Why do you think that is, and what do you think the school and faculty can do to try to increase the presence of Native graduates at the School of Social Work? You mentioned that there was a PhD social worker that was hired on the reservation. I don't know if that person, are they a UB graduate? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, June Van every graduated. and she actually came to the talking circle and said she wanted to work on something. And then recently, Pat Shelley, who I was working with in women's studies in the 80s, who is now in the School of Social Work, she has an initiative that she wants has asked us to join her in called the Native American Pipeline. And we really are trying to recruit June because June is wanting to do Ewe work. And that's how we kind of run Ewe is when people come to us and they have an initiative and then we talk about it and see what kind of resources we can help them put behind their initiatives.
0: So the pipeline, how might that work? I think you're talking about trying to create a pipeline of students, I don't know, starting how or when to kind of help
1: it gets outreach to Native American to colleges, primarily for the graduate school. that we are going to the colleges where there's higher numbers of Native American student enrollment and talking to them at their meetings and their groups that, where they gather and the different teachers that are there. Buffalo State has a very good program, and they've had several undergraduate social work students graduating from there. When I went to school, I was the third Native social worker in New York State. I went to Syracuse, the class of 1973, and the two other social workers, Alma Patterson, who's from Tuscarora, she was working for New York State, the only one position that New York State has for Native American services, and she had that position. And she would come to the school and search me out and take me to dinner and how are you doing, and kind of do the assessment to see when they're as at risk to drop out and talk me back into staying in school. (laughs) And the other was Muriel Lewis, and she was on a dog, and she was actually very close to Syracuse, so she used to come pretty regular and call up, say, let's go out and eat and see how this is. And then in the school, I had the Episcopal bishop's son, the Episcopal bishop of Buffalo at the time in the 70s. His son, Walter Higley, was my advisor in the school social work and he was really the one that, you know, whatever happened he was always in there and it was pretty intense individual work to keep me in school. And that's what it takes. You have to have funded personnel to work with the Native student and to really hang in there with them and help them get through these programs.
0: Yes, I can imagine. I know you went to school I actually went to school back in those years too and I would say that the curriculum I don't know how you know, I hope we're doing a better job, but I think maybe some suggestions on how to improve our curriculum to meet the needs of Native students. I mean, I don't know how it was for you when you went to school in terms of the content that related to Native Americans.
1: Well, in terms of the macro work, at Syracuse, that was the days when we were protesting the Vietnam War. And we were all in the streets with our upward dying songs. And we all marched, and we all sat in front of the TV waiting for our male counterpart's number to be called. And then remember, I worked in a dining hall. I had to work to be there. And I worked in a dining hall, and the one guy that got number one, as soon as he walked in the dining hall, everybody just started shouting, you're number one, you're number one. So, you know, at the times they're so different. The kids now don't really have a concept of being drafted. They don't see the results of Desert Storm. They don't see the results of all these wars that are going on. And even the people that write the policies to send them to war, they don't understand that as whenever you go to war somewhere, then you have a flush of immigrants, and then it's the same politicians who are writing laws not to allow all these immigrants in. So it's kind of like, wait a minute, you guys, you've got to take some responsibility here for what you do. And it's really a vicious cycle that we're stuck in in the legislature and the policy.
0: So it sounds like there's some really important historical lessons for all social work students. I really appreciate all the time that you gave us in terms of giving us so much background on Native American culture and life ways and some of the issues for social work, looking at it from a human rights and trauma-informed perspective. I don't know if you have any final comments or anything you would like to close with.
1: Well, I just want to let everybody know that we're still here. Our populations are increasing, and there will be more students. I think the whole thing of us going extinct 100 years ago really has to do with why we're partly invisible and why you don't see that many Native students. But uh, really looking for an effort and a commitment on the part of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work to Native people, and especially because we are the ones that have been here What's significant about the Haudenosaunee is we're on original lands. So we have a very different and one of the most um, powerful legal arguments in the United Nations because we are still on our original lands. I guess the recognition, you know, in our tradition we have this protocol of whenever the people gather we do this Thanksgiving message and there are 16 parts to it and each of the 16 parts has three aspects. And the first part is acknowledgment. And uh, that's because it is so important to be acknowledged. As social workers, I'm sure everybody can identify with that. And this is really what we, as indigenous people, suffer from, is not being acknowledged that we even exist and then things being done behind our backs without our consent to undermine our existence constantly. It's a challenge, and I'm just hoping that There are some social workers that will pick up the baton. It's like a relay race, you know, because there's a few of us for a certain time will go out there and we're getting to the point where we've got to pass the baton on and encourage some of the younger people to pick up these causes and to make these kinds of social change.
0: Well, thank you so much. I think you just made some excellent points and drove home the real need for more Native American students in the School of Social Work. And I think you gave us a lot of important food for thought. So I really want to thank you very much. And I know this is going to be very beneficial to our listeners to get a much better background in these issues. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me to do the podcast.
2: This is Charles Sims. And you have been listening to Agnes Williams discuss the subject of Native Americans, a trauma-informed human rights perspective. I hope you found it informative. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith,
0: professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.